6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Book of Romans. Well, we are entering hour 18 of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours project in which we're going to focus on what's arguably one of the most important books in the entire Bible. It's some people would call it the gospel according to Paul, the book of Romans, the epistle to the Romans. And this, this book systematically puts, first of all, everybody on, the, on a level playing field, but it primarily does so by removing all excuses and recourses. Now, there are 13 epistles that are assigned to Paul. This is the first of them. We're not going to go, we've just picked one of Paul's epistles to take as the representative one. We've taken the most challenging one, if you will. There'll be eight others after this that are called the Hebrew epistles. The book of Hebrews, which is unsigned. We believe it's Paul's, but that's another story. But the rest of these are written specifically to the 12 tribes. James, which is really Yaakov. 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 3rd John, and Jude, all Jewish epistles. Written to Jews, I mean. And then, uh, of course, Revelation being the capstone. So we are going to explore the book, uh, the epistle of the Hebrews. The definitive gospel according to Paul. It is the most comprehensive doctrinal book in the, in the New Testament. The impact on world history is unequaled by any other book. This book dramatically changed the course of history in the world. See, grace gradually erodes to various forms of legalism. One of the toughest things to really get a grasp of is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We tend to think in terms of rules and boundaries and so forth. Grace gradually will erode to various forms of legalism which become very vacuous. When grace becomes obscured, Throughout history, it leads to the Dark Ages. Very classically, of course, the 6th through the 16th century, which is known as the Dark Ages. It's when grace is rediscovered that the light shines and it changes. And the Kingdom of Blood is our briefing pack on the history of the church. You may want to acquaint yourself with that Dave Hunt and I did together. Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, is a classic for every serious uh, Christian. The style of the book of Romans is, is highly, highly literate. It's not an unlettered fisherman kind of thing. This is the most profound writing that exists anywhere. Now, that's quite a statement. But it's the most profound writing you will find anywhere. And it has a very international outlook, because first of all, Paul was not only a Roman citizen, but he was well educated in both Hebrew and Greek cultures deep, very deeply. This is a book which will delight the greatest logician. 
It will hold the attention of the wisest of men, and yet it will bring the humblest soul in tears of repentance at the feet of the Savior. A God that's small enough for our mind would not be big enough for our need. And the issues that Paul hits head on in this are the most profound issues that you'll find anywhere on the planet Earth. Now Paul is the new name for Saul. Paul really means the least, the little one. And he really understood, perhaps more than any of us ever will, the un the understood the grace of God. Because on the one hand, he declared himself, I am the chief of sinners. Paul would put himself at the head of any list of sinners because he persecuted the church. And he so designates himself in 1 Timothy, first letter there. Yet, he will also acknowledge that he was the most devoutly religious man who ever lived. Paul goes through quite a thing there in Philippians 3, how he diligently was a professional lawkeeper. You need to understand what really lies under this statement is that Jesus Christ was the most anti-religious person that ever walked the planet Earth. So God has already saved someone. See, if Paul is the greatest sinner and the most religious person around, God has already saved one who is far worse than you and me. Who loved him most back there in Luke 7? The one that was forgiven the most. Remember that parable? The same kind of thing. To whom is the book written? Well, it's written to believers. The book of Romans is written to believers, not non-believers. It's not preaching to the unsaved. The unsaved are never named as God's beloved. That's written to God's beloved. God did not use that term of unbelievers. It was always believers. The book was designed for teaching the saints, teaching those that are saved. I love when we say, well, what is a saint? What do we mean by a saint? Well, there's a lot of good definitions. I'm not using the classical church definition. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about saints in the biblical sense. Donald Gray Barnhouse is a definition that I like the most. A saint is, saints are a group of displaced persons, uprooted from their natural home, and on their way to an extraterrestrial destination, not of this planet, neither in its roots nor in its ideals. In other words, we're pilgrims. We're just passing through. Well, there are three main sections of the book of Romans. The first eight are the doctrinal sections. We'll focus on those primarily. It's going to give us the most complete diagnosis of sin and salvation and sanctification in the first eight chapters. Three chapters on defining sin, a couple of chapters on what salvation requirements are, and then sanctification. Then there's a few chapters, three chapters, that have to do with Israel. You could call them dispensational if you like. Israel past, present, and future. It will derive from that foundation, but you'll see that when we get there. And then the last section is the practical Answers the so what question. Okay, how does it affect us? So what, so what does that mean? How should we live? And so we've got faith, hope, and love in three sections there. What do we mean by the gospel? The gospel is not a code of ethics or morals. The gospel is not a creed to be accepted. The gospel is not a system of religion to be adhered to. The gospel is not good advice to follow. None of these things characterize the gospel in the biblical sense. 
The gospel is a message concerning a person who solved a problem for not only you and I, but for God Himself. The book of Romans is about grace. And my friend uh, Lou Phelps has suggested that grace can be considered an acronym for God's righteousness at Christ's expense. How can God love us without violating His righteousness? His righteousness would demand that a penalty be paid, and what his, his incredible gift to us is the gift of Himself as payment of that expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That pay, that's the price paid to, so God can extend the grace He wants to to us. The book of Romans has the most complete and penetrating statement of God's plan, divine plan for our redemption. Christ did not come to make bad men good, but to give dead men life. It's a big difference. Big difference. Remember the prodigal son? You all know the story of the prodigal son. We don't have to repeat that from Luke 15. Remember how the father... Did he, when, the, when the son finally comes back home, did my father think, oh, my son has become good. No, that's not what he said. No, he said, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. You see the difference? See the difference? And that's us, of course. Another point about the prodigal son is the son never lost his sonship. Chapter 1 of the book of Romans, a profound chapter, but one of the key verses there is verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or Gentile. Unto salvation, not unto reformation, education, progress, or development. Unto salvation. It is for a lost man and no other. Men are either in salvation or in the opposite, perdition. And that's, of course, Mr. and Mrs. Men, right? I won't get into that whole debate here. There is a trilogy that altered the course of history. Martin Luther was a, was a devout monk who, or practitioner who was really obsessed with his sinfulness. And he went through all the self inflicting procedures of the medieval church, still unsatisfied, still overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. Until a monk he encountered, he finally decided to go to Rome, up through the Alps to Rome. And on the way there, he encountered a monk that suggested his answer lies in the book of Habakkuk. And when he went through the book of Habakkuk, there's a verse that leapt out at Martin Luther. The just shall live by faith. And that's when he shed, he shed all the things that he had been doing and rediscovered the grace of God. It became the, the, the watchword for the Reformation. And that, of course, changed the history of the world. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? What does that mean? The book of Romans deals with that question. In fact, it's quoted in verse 17 of chapter 1 of Romans. This, book, this verse from Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? The book of Romans deals with justification. 
The just shall live how? The book of Galatians quotes this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. It describes how, we, uh, how the just shall live. The just shall live by what? By faith. What do you mean by that? The book of Hebrews deals with that. And it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, setting the stage for chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is well known as the Hall of Faith. And we'll deal with the book of Hebrews when we get there. The just shall live by faith. What fascinates me about this is that the three, these three epistles are a trilogy amplifying Habakkuk 2.4. They, they each quote it as the cornerstone of their epistles. So these are designed as a trilogy. That's one of the many, many reasons I believe the book of Hebrews, even though it's unsigned, was Pauline and its authorship. I think Paul deliberately did a trilogy on Habakkuk 2.4. If it turns out that Hebrews isn't, wasn't written by Paul, it's even a greater miracle because the Holy Spirit obviously has his thumbprint all over this thing. First section of these groups is the doctrinal. The introduction, the plight of pagan man and moral man and religious man. In chapter 1 and 2 we have these three. Every person is in one of these three groups. And they're all losers. They're all losers. They don't make it. God's greatest problem then is how can He love and reconcile these that are falling short? He does that by His greatest gift, His gift of paying the price, paying their debts, which brings, of course, the peace of God, and then the death of defeat. One of the cha great chapters, book of Romans, chapter six: Sin is not going to reign; it ain't going to reign no more. Your power over sin, if you're in Christ. Uh, is there. We call it chapter 7 law school. That all leads up to the most incredible chapter in many respects in the entire Bible, chapter 8. We'll show you why. The ultimate challenge. What is the greatest thought that has ever entered the mind of man? There's a challenge for a test question. Turn that in before the evening. And what, what's the, what is the greatest thought that has ever entered the mind of man. Well, there's probably a number of candidates. Daniel Webster's is probably the best one. My responsibility to my maker. Try to beat that one. Try to beat that one. See, God created man in his own image, we're told, right? Well, if we are persons, so is God. And since we have personal feelings, so does God. And if God be God, he must be the judge of all. So we learn a lot from just that. You must meet God as He is, not as you might wish Him to be. We need to understand how He sees things. That's the challenge. You know, it's interesting, when, if you've ever been in a large organization or a large company, if for some reason there's a new president, a new guy takes over, the, the, the new boss, everybody scrambles, well, what's he like? Where's he from? Is he easy? Is he hard? Is he this? Is he, you try to find, what are his buying habits? What's he, you know, you want to know what the guy in charge prefers, right? Well, it's time we did that with our guys. Find out how God sees things, not how we might wish He sees things. The first thing that you really encounter in chapter 1 of Romans is the judgment of pagan humanity for suppressing God's truth and for ignoring His revelation and for perverting God's glory. That's all in chapter 1. And the judgment that God announces may surprise you I've studied this for many, many years and didn't recognize the nature of what he puts in here. So you and I are born into this lost race. We want to understand 
what happens when you suppress God's truth, ignoring His revelation of perverting His glory? You will be astonished to learn of what His judgment is constituted of. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. We're all held accountable. It says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Another place to look is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. No one can escape that. The firmament shows His handiwork. And you go through, read Psalm 19. Read Psalm 8. God can hold us accountable without even picking up a Bible. Just look around. He holds you accountable. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. For this cause, get the judgment that God pronounces on those that refuse. Notice what, what they reject. They haven't rejected Christ yet. We're not talking about doctrinal, you know, the Messiah. We're talking about the creation. The creation. Recognize Him as the Creator. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their females, the word is not women in the Greek, it's females. Even their females did, did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the males, not men, we're talking males. It's, the Greek's very, you know, uh, crisp. And likewise also the males, leaving the natural use of the females burned in their lust one toward another, males with males, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meat. I never realized that homosexuality was a judgment of God. That amazed me. Certainly it's a sin. There's a choice involved. I understand that. But there's another aspect of this thing. Because they didn't acknowledge Him as a Creator. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even the females did change the natural use for that which is against nature. And likewise also the males, leaving the natural use of the females, burned in their lust one toward another, males with males working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of the error of which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. God's judgment was abandoning them to a depraved lifestyle. See, we're all equally accountable. The plight of pagan man, the so-called moral man, religious man. Chapter 2 will deal with those last two. So God has a problem. How can he justify unrighteous man without violating his own nature, without violating his holiness, without violating his justice? That's his challenge. How does he do that? By giving us the greatest gift. Chapter 3 deals with the problem. Chapter 4 does with, deals with the gift. You know, it's interesting that even Socrates, five centuries before Christ was born, wrote to Plato saying, it may be that the deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. Great insight. Socrates recognized the problem. I can't see how. It may be that deity can forgive sin, but I don't see how. He could not see how God could forgive sins without somebody paying the price for it. 
What insight? What insight? Why did God give us the law? This will surprise you. Why do we have laws? So you behave better. No. So you behave worse. No. Yeah. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. For sin to abound, that's the opposite of our thinking. Why is the law given? To eliminate any ability of man to rationalize away his sin nature. It's there to show us our sin. <laughs> Every time I think of the, of the law as a mirror, I'm reminded of Walter Martins. He was from our audience, and he's talking about how the law is like our mirror. It shows us ourselves. But we don't shave with the mirror. We're shaved by grace. <laughs> that crude pun was a... Well, anyway, moving on. This will all be explained in Romans 7. I want to contrast two Adams. The first Adam. By one man's offense, many died. By one Adam came judgment and condemnation. Through one man's offense, death reigned. One man's offense, condemnation to all men. Disobedience of one, many made sinners. This is all in, 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 these are verses from 15 through 19 of chapter 5. And, and as a result, sin reigned in death. The last Adam, which is the title of Jesus Christ, by one man's free gift, righteousness to many, for many offenses, the gift of justification, through one man, believers reign in life, the righteousness of one, justification is offered to all, the obedience of one, many declared righteous. The grace reigns eternal life in contrast to the death. The failure of the first Adam and the remedy of the last Adam is a contrast that Paul builds in the book of Romans. What is the sequence to maturity? We talk about spiritual maturity. Well, there's tribulation. We know what that is. That leads to what? Perseverance. Perseverance leads to experience. And what's the climax? Hope. What a surprise. Through this movement to a maturity, your maturity is when you live in that hope, moment by moment, continually. But there's, you get to Romans 6, this one is a dandy. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. You now, if you're in Christ, you now have the power over sin. It ain't going to reign no more. And chapter 7 and 8 will detail how. What this reads says, do not let sin continue to reign. It's present imperfect, grammatically speaking. It's present tense. It's imperfect. That means continuing. Let not sin you know, continue. How do you do that? How do you avoid that? How do you avoid sin? How do you have power over sin? By insisting that what God says is true. The dominion is now your choice. It wasn't before. When you weren't in Christ, you, didn't, you were a slave to sin. You didn't have a choice. If you're in Christ, you have a choice. It's not a one-time thing. It's a moment-by-moment -moment faith choice. Not a feeling choice, a faith choice. Moment-by-moment. -moment. That's the goal. And when you stumble, and you will, it's first, remember the Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's His faithfulness to rely on, not ours. There are three tenses of being saved. We use that term so. 
You know, I remember I was, when I was at a conference once, a Christian conference, and there was a, you know, there were some tables, and there was, you know, around, there's some extra chairs. And I, asked, I went up there and said, are these, are these chairs saved? The guy looked up and says, they're not even under conviction. <laughs> but we use that term so many. There is the, uh, the uh, concept of having been saved. Have, have, have you been saved? That is from the penalty of sin. That's positional. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and so forth. That's called justification, salvation, if you will. You're saved from the penalty of sin. But there's another kind. There's a present tense. You are being saved from the power of sin. That's operationally. From the Holy Spirit, moment by moment. That's called sanctification. See, we use these theologians use, define and use these terms slightly differently. And then yet there's the future sense of being saved. You shall be saved. From what? From the presence of sin. That's called the redemption of our body in Romans 8. So you can be, you have been saved positionally in the penalty of sin if you're in Christ. You are being saved from the power of sin operationally, moment by moment, if you'll exercise that in your sanctification. And you shall be saved in the sense from the presence of sin future. This is all developed in the book of Romans. Why was the law given? To expose our sin nature? To incite the sin nature to sin no more? Sin nature cannot be reformed. To drive us to despair of self-effort? and to drive us to dependence upon the Holy Spirit alone. If you're relying on your own nature, you've lost. You need to rely on the Holy Spirit moment by moment. Let's contrast the law versus spirit. The law depends on the flesh. The spirit depends on God's power. The law produces rebellion. The spirit produces God's desires. The law results in more sin. The spirit results in righteousness. The law brings wrath. The Spirit brings joy, peace, production. The law is not by faith. The Spirit is by faith. These are all excerpts from Paul's other epistles. The law kills. The Spirit gives life. That's the difference. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.